Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. In April, I made a decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. The assumption was that more than 300,000 Afghan National Security Forces that we had trained over the past two decades and equipped would be a strong adversary in their civil wars with the Taliban. That assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. Is he being resolute or angry or both? That is the headline of Mark Halpern's Wide World of News today. And Mark joins us as he does every Wednesday in the second hour. What's your short answer to that question? Well, definitely both. I think uh, it would be it would have been better had he been a little bit more optimistic, I think. You know, speeches, uh, written speeches are one thing, performance is another. And I was just struck by how few grace notes there were about anything, how, how somber it was. Uh, and, um, you know, again, the measure for the White House is, did he do himself any good with the speech? And we'll see, but it doesn't seem, at least with the chattering class, he did himself very much good. Well, it was definitely a conscious decision on his part to go out and, and use that tone, don't you think? You know, conscious decision. I mean, if, if that was the plan, mm-hmm. uh, again, just surveying elite opinion on social media and columns, etc., I don't know that that won, won over a, a large segment of that group. Now, as always, maybe out in America, that was the exact right tone to take. But I, I look at the presidents in the television era who are generally considered successful communicators, and, and my sense is Reagan and Clinton are considered the two most successful in terms of communication. And I don't think either of them would have ever given a speech with that tone on that topic uh, of such a great of such length. How about the idea that he was just plain angry, perhaps because of editorials like the forget the Wall Street Journal for a moment. And I know you cite that in the wide world of news today. But think instead about the editorial that was posted late on Monday from The Washington Post, quote, this is a moral disaster, one attributable not to the actions of military and diplomatic personnel in Kabul, who've been courageous and professional in the face of deadly dangers, but to mistakes strategic and tactical by Mr. Biden and his administration. That has to burn coming from the Post, don't you think? 
It does, although the Washington Post editorial page is not as liberal as the, the news Times. pages in some ways. Well, the Times for sure, but I don't think that the editorial page is as liberal as the news section of the Washington Post. It's a rare, rare liberal paper where that's the case. Um, look, there's there's gray in here on some of these issues, despite the partisan media wanting to make everything black and white. I think the president is rightly frustrated by certain aspects of the way this is covered. The notion that this is as deleterious to American interests around the world as the Vietnam War, I think first and foremost, the question of why the Americans who are still in Afghanistan are still there, whether that's the fault of the American government or not. These are some of the big issues that, that I know burn the president and certainly animated the tone he had. But the reality is part of why I think he and his, his staff are so are bristling so much is because they know a lot of this is a lot of criticism is true. Um, you know, could Bagram, should Bagram Air Base been, been kept open at the cost of having lots of troops on the ground? Maybe, maybe not. But the reality is a lot of what the president said in declaring something a great success and then blaming people for its failure, I think most centrally, it's just, it's just not well explained. There may be an explanation there that, that intellectually or politically satisfying, but I don't think the president gave it yesterday. And, and again, I'm someone who is inclined to root hard for all presidents to succeed in matters of national security. I'm someone who's inclined to look a little deeper to say, is the criticism fair? So this is not a reflexive uh, posture of criticizing him for the sake of criticizing him. But I do think he simply hasn't really taken responsibility for the errors that were made. That's what a lot of presidents do. But I don't think he can be indignant about criticism when, again, on some of the central decisions he made that had an adverse effect. He's he's uh, he's not really owned up to what he did. Again, I think he's right. Personally, I think he was right about ending the war, not extending the the, the evacuation. But but he there were mistakes made on his watch, and he's someone who has a history of making mistakes on big foreign policy questions. We know so he can't he can't run from the criticism. And I think I think to some extent. That's what he's still doing. You share Peter Baker's observation that the calculus within the West Wing is that in this type of news cycle, 24-7 news cycle, very soon Americans' attention will move on. You know, one of my great uh, tools for trying to sort of get a sense of where the news business is headed is the CBS radio news that play here on SiriusXM on POTUS and, and that I've listened to my whole life. And this morning, uh, one of the early newscasts, East Coast Time, uh, Afghanistan was the fourth story. So I think, look, we have to watch to see about the revival of terrorism as a base, a base of operations in Afghanistan, uh, what the Taliban does in terms of human rights uh, on the ground in, in Afghanistan, and then the postmortems about the Biden decision-making. All those things will keep this story in the news. But, but the White House is betting that attention will turn away you know, in the next few weeks, and, and some of these other issues will move front and center. Now, these other issues, fights within the Democratic Party over his legislative agenda, dealing with the pandemic, inflation, uh, I'm not sure that, that the other news is going to be any better politically for the president. But their bet, as Peter Baker correctly says, is that this is a fascination of the Council on Foreign Relations and Michael Smirkanish and Mark Halperin, but that for most of the American people, uh, the, the bottom line will be not handled perfectly at the end, but the right thing to do, and that and that's the main thing. And maybe they're right about that. Mark, what, if anything, do you make of a major speech like this being delivered midday, late afternoon? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, we're in August. It's not the, 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 
the most important time for commercial television network ratings. But had he tried to deliver that speech in prime time, would it have been covered? Maybe covered live on the broadcast networks? Probably, I would say, but 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 maybe not. But but also, what would the ratings have been like? And and did they want to take that hit? In the in the media environment in which we live, and I say this with respect to you because you and I share sensibilities about these things, but I think maybe that point of prime time versus afternoon, maybe that's a vestige of a bygone era. Maybe that really doesn't matter as much in terms of reaching Americans where they get their news. And and uh, and like I said, if 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 I if I were thinking about it from the White House's point of view, I'm not sure a prime time address would have done much. I, I will say. The other thing is that was a really long speech. I thought one of the just grading on kind of a craftsmanship, I thought it was extremely repetitive and, and long. And so maybe the president really wanted to give a long speech. Apparently he did. And asking the networks to cover a speech of that length and that repetitious in primetime might have been something the White House just didn't want to do. It may be all of that and that he's more on top of his game at that time of day. By the way... I'm more on top of my game at that time of day than I am in the early yeah. evening. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, this is the, the, the reality of, of trying to figure out what's going on. There, there are close friends of the president, uh, longtime close friends of the president, who believe he has lost more than a step, and they're concerned about it. There are obviously people on the right who think he's, he's well beyond that. Uh, but there's no doubt that his schedule is certainly dictated by the, the White House's sense of, of what he needs, how he, when he does best. And, and that certainly could have been part of it. Um, uh, I, I thought, I thought the, 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 like, as we said at the beginning, if, if the tone he had throughout the performance, kind of the, the demeanor he had was really the one the white house intended, I'd be surprised. It's been five years since these words were offered. You know, to just be grossly journalistic, you could put, Half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Was she right? was she prescient? This is this is back in the news because the lifestyle column in the Washington Post discusses Hillary's speech. I think one of the biggest, maybe the biggest story in America over the last five or six years is the behavior of, existence of, understanding and lack of understanding of Trump supporters. Uh, you saw it in the election of 2016. You saw it throughout the Trump presidency. You certainly see it now regarding vaccination rates. You certainly see it now in the posture towards um, what happened on January 6th. This group of tens of millions of Americans who have have attitudes and behaviors that are, I think, just fine and have attitudes and behaviors that I think are not so fine um, uh, are, I think, central to understanding America currently and understanding our shared future as a country. And for the Washington Post to run this story that basically says, you know what, maybe, maybe, you know, 80 million, 80 million Americans are in fact deplorable. I, I, I just, I'm sort of breathless, uh, for even a paper like the Post, uh, so liberal in its news coverage to write this story and, and people should read it and make their own judgment. But I really, like I said, I think I think the behavior of this group of tens of millions of Americans is, is one of the biggest problems, not in every case, but in cases like the vaccination rates the country faces now. But the failure of people whose jobs, journalists, to try to understand this group, to try to help to bring them into 
the American dialogue in a, in, a, in, a, in a practical way to failure to understand what motivates them and to even to try. I think this story is just, it's just horrendous, just horrendous. Uh, and to kind of celebrate Hillary Clinton's denigration of tens of millions of Americans. Again, I'll say, because I don't want to be misunderstood, I, I understand what, why, she, why she has that view. And I have some sympathy, some sympathy for her concern about the behavior of that group. But this story is sets us back. Uh, hopefully it's August and no one, no one but me will have read it. To the extent the 80 million will read it, this is what will keep many of them unvaccinated. Yeah, I said it's August. It's, of course, September 1st. Um, look, uh, like it's just so complicated and it's so hard to express myself on it without feeling like both sides are going to be, be misunderstand me. This group is so alienated, and there's been there's been some Twitter threads about this of late, and, and obviously people on the right occasionally will weigh in on it. But 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 this group needs to be brought into the national conversation, and this story and this attitude that the dominant media has towards Trump supporters is just it's just not in the national interest. Whatever you think about Donald Trump, whatever you think about the the, the beliefs and practices of the people who still support him. We have to come together as a country. We can't have stories like this that are just exhibit, you know, 95,000 that that lock in attitudes, including about vaccines that just it's just so so against what I think the country needs to be about. Mark, thank you for that report. I really appreciate it. Every Wednesday, we uh, we have the privilege of entertaining you here. The Wide World of News comes out daily. I'm a paid subscriber and I recommend that everybody listening should be. Thank you, Michael. That's Mark Halpern, ladies and gentlemen. Let me say a word about that column that Mark was just making reference to. I asked Mark if, at the outset of our conversation, I asked Mark whether Hillary Clinton was prescient when using the deplorable reference, because that's the way this column, this column, by the way, written by Roxanne Roberts in the Washington Post, Hillary Clinton's deplorable speech shocked voters five years ago. Some feel it was prescient. That's why I asked Mark whether he thought it was prescient. You can tell from his words he thought it was offensive. Um, Jonathan Allen, who wrote Shattered, gets the final word in this column. Uh, Now many of her fans, Hillary's fans, believe she was prescient about half of Trump's base. Quote, after four years of President Trump, Jonathan Allen said, I think that there are a lot of Democrats and some Republicans who would say that was an undercount. It's a very interesting piece because it reconstructs where did the deplorable line come from? Turns out that she'd been speaking in similar fashion for days on the campaign trail. And and then came a fundraiser, which seems straight out of central casting. It was September 9, 2016. She was the opening act for Barbara Streisand at a glitzy fundraiser in New York City. A group of LGBTQ supporters were gathered. Where were they? At Cipriani, of course. The Democratic candidate had one job to fire up her donors. I am all that stands between you and the apocalypse, she told the cheering crowd, launching into things she found deplorable about Trump. He threatened marriage equality, cozied up to white supremacists, made racist and sexist remarks, all things she found, quote, so personally offensive. She warned that there were two months left in the race and no one should assume that he wouldn't be elected anyway. 
just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables, right? There was then laughter and applause. The people in this basket, emboldened by Trump's tweets, were irredeemable, she said. But there was another basket, Trump supporters who felt the government had let them down and wanted change, and Democrats had to empathize to win these voters. Basket of deplorables was not in Clinton's prepared remarks. She often improvised in speeches. Reporters jumped on it, as did the Trump campaign, which immediately slammed Clinton for not running a quote-unquote positive campaign. Future President Donald Trump then appeared in, I think he was in Iowa, seizing on her words. Yeah, a rally in Iowa. Here's what he then said. Well, my opponent slanders you as deplorable and irredeemable. I call you hardworking American patriots who love your country and want a better future for all of our people. So Frank Luntz, the Republican wordsmith, uh, said he knew the first time that I heard the phrase that she was very, very stupid for using it. It is an insulting word, as insulting as anything in the English language. To be deplorable means you have no excuse as a human being. If you're a deplorable person, it is saying that there is no redeeming quality to you whatsoever. Luntz also knew it would be an opportunity for Trump to galvanize his base. I thought she had committed a potentially fatal error. Insult your opponent, attack your opponent, criticize your opponent, even condemn your opponent, but never, ever, ever condemn your opponent's supporters because you need their votes. Interesting, one additional detail, Boston Globe's Diane Hessen said that she tracked undecided voters and their reaction to deplorable and found that it was stronger than the controversy over Clinton's emails or FBI Director James Comey's comments about them. Said Diane Hessen, there was one moment when I saw more undecided voters shift to Trump than any other when it all changed, when voters began to speak differently about their choice, she said. Five years on, how do you reflect on Hillary's comment, the deplorable comment, the basket of deplorables. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.